there almost wasn't one. I was still showing up every day. I didn't have to wear camis. Still worked out with the boys. Still considered myself a Marine. But my job really didn't change that much. So it really took a while before that sunk in. Probably after five years, I started to realize I've got to treat this like a civilian job. There's the role that the Marines fill and there's the role John fills as a civilian. Those have to be different. I had delegate and that left me with time. Is that much of it? Is that not much of a change for you, right? My name is Kerry Kite. I used to load bombs in the Air Force, and now I'm a writer, a filmmaker, and an entrepreneur. Through using the post 9-11 GI Bill to go to college, working hourly jobs to pay the bills, and freelancing my way into a career, I've studied what it takes to successfully transition from service to civilian. And that study has become a conversation. On this podcast, I speak to other veterans, successful artists and entrepreneurs about their transition, what they did well, where they failed, what they learned, and most importantly, how they applied their skills. Episode 62 features John Daly, a United States Marine and a writer, a coach, and the author of the upcoming book, Tough Rugged Bastards. Welcome. This is Veteran Made. All right. I think we're good. I think, okay. I, I think we're live. John Daly, welcome to Veteran Made. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Been, been a, a long time in the making here. We've obviously talked on the phone a couple of times and, and been texting and all that, so I'm I'm really glad that we've that we're finally making this making this happen, and uh, I'm excited to speak with you today. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I went back and looked, and uh, I think the first text that we exchanged was February of 22. So it's been nearly a year and a half, kind of yeah. in the making. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the fir- my first exposure to you was um, was through a Dead Reckoning course that you that you taught. Oh, okay, you're right. Um, um, I can't remember um, which one. I've taken so many from this. Yeah, yeah. They have a ton of great courses. Memoir was it? Memoir, short story. Um, story. I think it was short story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it was great. So loved loved my experience there with you, and then loved the conversations that we've had, and, and a lot of ground to cover today. I know you've got a book coming out eventually, which which we'll talk about. Um, but I kind of mainly want to talk about your Substack and your your coaching business, and kind of how you how you're approaching life and work these days. But before we do that, for those that don't know you, if you could give us just a, a brief primer on, on kind of who you are and where you served and, and what brought you here, and then we can get into it. Sure. Um, let's see. I joined the Marine Corps back you know, right out of high school in, in 1987. Um, I did 21 years. I had a, a, a really fortuitous oppor- you know, opportunity early on. My first duty assignment was a, a paperwork error. So instead of getting sent to a, an infantry unit, I got sent to a sniper platoon within an infantry unit, um, which didn't win me a lot of friends because, uh, you know, a lot of guys had to work hard to get there and I kind of lucked into it. Um, but, you know, it gave me an opportunity to prove uh, kind of what I was, what I had going on and the opportunity to learn a ton. So I did that for a while, uh, eventually made my way into Force Recon and spent uh, the bulk of my Marine Corps career there, about 10 years, um, and had the opportunity to be one of the first first Marines, anyway, on the ground in, in Afghanistan in 2001. And then um, from there, the Marine Corps was told to start a special operations unit attached to U.S. SOCOM. And in 2003, I was uh, picked to be one of the team leaders for that unit called Detachment 1. And then in 2006, the, the Marine Corps officially stood up the, the Marine Corps Special Operations Command. I spent, helped get the school started. Um, I retired in 2008 and uh, continued to, and still, you know, it's been 15 years now as a government civilian working as the training and education branch. 
director. So I have a great job. I get to work with Marines every day. Um, you know, and that led to a lot of this, you know, trying to take some of the stuff that I do with them and, and do it, you know, to help other people. That's great. What was it, um, what was it like to be chosen and asked voluntold, I suppose, uh, <laughs> to, to, uh, to help build that. And then what was it actually like to, to kind of help build that? Was that something you were excited about? Was it something you wanted to walk? No, through I was, you know, fanatical about it. You know, it was <laughs> the sort of, uh, the, the initial unit detachment one, you know, there were rumors that, uh, that it was going to happen. Uh, secretary of defense Rumsfeld had told the Marine Corps, you're going to do this thing. And the Marine Corps tried to say, no, we'll, we're, we're good. Uh, but, uh, he was adamant and, um, you know, so I, I got approached and asked, um, by, a, a one of the, probably the biggest mentors I've had in my career, who was the commander of the unit, uh, asked if I'd be interested. And I was, you know, it's, it's I talk in the book, it's like being asked, Hey, you know, a guitar player being, Hey, you know, say, Hey, do you want to be, want to play for the Foo Fighters or, you know, um, yeah, you know, a, a minor league pitcher saying, Hey, do you want to? throw the world series. I mean, it was, it, it was that big of a, a deal to me. Um, the sort of thing where I was really, you know, kind of reticent. I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I'm good enough, if I'm, uh, so like the imposter syndrome, you know, which, uh, you know, I think a lot of veterans wind up with, you know, particularly as they transition, you know, I, I definitely was saddled with a, with a ton of that, you know, and then just, uh, you know, decided, Hey, I can only do, you know, do the best job I can do. And, and hopefully, uh, you know, I, I was surrounded with a great team, you know, and that's obviously what makes units successful. Yeah. What did you, so how did you approach it? If you had that level of excitement and that level of that kind of quality of responsibility that you felt, what, what how did you approach that with all those on your mind? Um, for me, what I told my team was like, Hey, we're, we'll do whatever. All right. You know, we had, uh, you know, SOCOM was formed in 1987. And so the SEALs, you know, were, you know, joined in 1987, the Green Berets, the Rangers, uh, Air Force, uh, the CCT and the PJs. The Marine Corps turned it down at that time. Right. So it, as someone who was in a, a force recon unit, who is, I mean, we certainly consider ourselves the peers of, of, of those other guys. Uh, generally, we considered ourselves better than those other guys. But uh, <laughs> but there was always like a, a, a great working relationship with them, a, you know, a kind of a rivalry. Um, so, you know, we spent a lot of time, you know, drinking beer, complaining about the fact that we, we didn't get the same level of, of respect or the same level of funding, the same level of missions. Um, so having that opportunity, there was, it was really a no fail. You know, it was kind of, there's a lot of weight on uh, the... 87 of us that started the unit, you know, shoulders on, you know, just making sure that we don't screw this up. So what I told my guys was, Hey, we'll do windows. Basically, you know, we'll do whatever mission comes down the pike and we'll do it really well. And, and, uh, you know, they always performed. So, you know, we, we, uh, had a really great time. That's, that's terrific. So that I think is, is a really, you know, interesting, sort of template probably it seems like for how you've kind of built your your career in retirement right so like you're obviously still working in in, in a similar capacity um teaching and and instructing and and doing all of that work on the government side of things but then it seems like you've taken a lot of of the doctrine and and kind of moved it over to your writing and to your to your your personal coaching what was what was the transition like from active duty 
to your um, government civilian role now? And then when did you start to think about doing some of this work, writing and coaching on the side in addition to the civilian work that you're doing? Oh, um, the transition for me was really, I mean, it, there almost wasn't one, you know, I, in my mind, it took probably five years, you know, because I was still showing up every day. I was, uh, didn't have to wear, you know, camis, but, uh, you know, still worked out with the boys still, um, considered myself a Marine and that's, you know, the, there's still kind of once a Marine, always Marine thing, but just, I mean, my job really didn't change that much. So it, it really took a, a while before that sunk in. So I th always tell people that I think my transition was, was almost non-existent. Um, and probably after about five years, I started realizing that, Hey, I, I've got to treat this like a civilian job. I can't, um, you know, there's, there's obviously the role that the Marines fill. And then there's the role that John fills as a uh, civilian and those, those have to be different. So I had to, um, you know, push off, you know, delegate, uh, let Marines do the, the things that they were, um, supposed to do. And that really left me with time, right? You know, I realized that, man, I've, I've got a little more time on my hands. So, um, I used the, uh, I retired as a master sergeant and I, Finished just before I retired, finished a, a bachelor's degree using uh, tuition assistance in what was the big thing at the time, Homeland Security Studies. So I thought I was going to be a consultant or, or whatever the case may be. Um, when I realized that I had a little bit of time, I still had the GI Bill. I was, uh, you know, had always loved uh, literature and it really seemed like the time to, to get back into that. So I initially took a a liberal arts master's program that focused on literature. And then, uh, during that getting to write a lot more, I, I kind of remembered or you know, recalled the, the, how I had enjoyed writing, you know, short stories as a kid and, uh, applied to, uh, the university of North Carolina in Wilmington to their master of fine arts, uh, writing program and was fortunate enough to get accepted. Um, and that, you know, it's, it, uh, a totally different world. I mean, I was 40 some, you know, probably, you know, 42, 43 at that time and, uh, getting thrust into a, you know, a complete academic world with, uh, you know, some, a lot of, uh, English teachers, people that had, you know, had, you know, pretty solid academic credentials and I, I had very little. Um, so it was, it was a huge learning experience, but everybody that I met were, and you, you know, you hear in the military, you, you, going to hear a lot about academia and then they're all lefties and horrible people. And that wasn't my experience whatsoever. I mean, I was probably in one of the most liberal uh, kind of universities around one of the most liberal, um, I mean, liberal arts program, but, uh, you know, with, with writers and artists and poets. Um, and I, I loved every minute of it. I mean, they were great, great people. It was great to, to make, you know, uh, different acquaintances and, and, certainly break away from what I had known my whole life, which was just, you know, other Marines. Yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's so cool. There's a couple of things there. Full of threads I want to pull on. Start with the second one. Jordan Peterson has talked about this before. He's talked about the, the, um, you know, this sort of like divide. We, we understand the military civilian divide, right. But there's also this part of the political divide, cultural divide, because it's not political so much, it's cultural, is between like, you know, academia and professors and, and, and folks who study for a living or folks who write for a living or paint for a living right on that, on that front. And they're subsidized through 
grants or through universities or whatever don't really have an understanding of how the military industrial complex or how, mm. how corporations work and all that stuff. And so they have their complaints, you know, and then these folks have their complaints over there. And this amazing thing happens when you interact with each other where you realize, hey, we're all people and we have yeah. different experiences and it informs what we do. Yeah, and I, I that exists, right? I mean, there sure. it definitely exists. Academia is a, is a you know going to be by virtue of its uh, you know existence a, a more liberal uh, minded uh, entity. But uh, I mean, the the people that I you know I met there, the uh, you know all the classmates that I had were just incredibly welcoming. I mean, it's yeah. it's uh, very easy to see how you know an old combat vet coming in into a class could be a little bit off-putting or frightening. Um, but, you know, I was the one who was nervous. You know, I know I was like, uh, again, that kind of imposter syndrome. Like, I don't even know that I belong in these, in yeah. these classrooms, but, uh, yeah. it was, you know, I had a great time. I learned a lot and I think I, I grew up a lot, you know, mm. in that, that that's really when I transitioned, I think when I, you know, really started uh, interacting with people outside of the, the sphere of, of influence that I had been with for at that point you know, 25 or more years interesting D- double tap on that for me if you don't mind what what specifically uh, do you feel like you happened in you or around you and that those that environment those moments were the ones that that made you feel like you had transitioned um i think i had uh you know in the marine corps a, a very insular society like like all military branches are but particularly within the special operations units and you know they're we don't deal with other marines right we we live with live around and and our families interact with it's like being in the mob kind of right uh, like in goodfellas there's a big uh kind of diatribe where they talk about you know we only hang out with each other so all the strangeness that we have seems normal all right all the, yeah. the weirdness of uh, being around you know your fellow service members becomes very, very normal. And I had never broken out of that. Um, so, you know, that was, was really a big, the big transition, you know, being around people who were just wildly different for me. Um, I mean, the first, I think openly gay people that I'd ever really encountered this, the first, uh, uh, people who were absolutely, uh, you know, willing to, to fight, against uh things that i you know thought were uh everybody believed in or everybody should believe in and you know having the opportunity to sit down and, and have dialogue with people um about things that i had you know strongly held beliefs that i had when they're they're adamantly 180 out you know i'd really never met people uh mm. in that situation before so for me i was a uh, I mean, I learned a lot more than I learned, you know, getting a, a couple of degrees, right? A lot of it was just, you know, just getting to know people, getting to interact with people. And, and one, like you said, you know, people are people. Um, that recognition came kind of late in life for me, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I had a similar experience in film school, right? And I think it also helps when you're when you're in a fine arts program. My, 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 bat, my bachelor's was fine arts. Um, I don't have a master's, but your master's is in fine arts. When, you, when you're... Uh, and then critiquing work, actual work, like in your case, where you in my case, it was well different. It wasn't prose, it was, you know, um, video games and comics and things like mm-hmm. that, more entertainment specific. But like when you're putting pen to paper and you're putting your work out there and you're receiving somebody else's work, you're not just talking about like 
theoretical ideas or, you know, politics at large or, you know, philosophy, you're talking about, okay, well, I know what's on your heart and what's on your mind because Mm -hmm. you're on paper and I'm reading it and you know what's on my heart and on my mind because I put pen to paper and you're reading it and now we're discussing this real thing Mm -hmm. instead of this kind of like whatever, you know? Yeah, definitely. That's, uh, I mean, that was probably the the hardest thing that I had to do was the first time I had to, you know, make mm. copies for everybody of, of some writing that I had done and, and pass them out and then, you know, wait a week to get, you know, handwritten critiques and to have everybody sit and talk about it, you know, when I'm, I'm not allowed to, to interject. Uh, it's, it's the way we do workshops, right? So, um, yeah, that was uh, that week, that whole week. I mean, my heart was, anytime I think about it, I was like, oh my God, they're going to hate me. They're going to kick me out. They're yeah. uh, going to think I'm an idiot, whatever the case may be. And they might not have been wrong. I mean, my, my <laughs> grammar was, uh, you know, for a guy who was in a master's writing program, uh, I uh, was never never great at, at grammar and punctuation. So that's it. Did you, yeah. um, did you, uh, did you employ or deploy any specific? Um, techniques to to combat that imposter syndrome or however you were articulating those feelings at the time or is it just something you kind of push through yeah i think i just push through and i think with uh you know this the same thing i learned in the military is, is you can only thing you can do is do your best right uh, you can always um, uh you know, count on the fact that hopefully if you're if you know that imposter syndrome is warranted, all right, then people are going to let you know that, hey, you don't, you don't belong here. Uh, you know, you got to gain some comfort eventually in the fact that you're, you're sitting there, you know, or you're on a team, you know, surrounded by awesome people, then, then you probably have something uh, going on. Um, and then the same thing applied with, with writing. I'm like, you know what, I, I sent an application, they accepted me. I, 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 you know, whether I believe it or not, you know, they, these people believe that I, I deserve to be here. And, uh, it, it lessens. I don't know that it ever really goes away, but it, uh, it certainly lessens with time. I think, um, you know, it, what, one thing we do really well in the, in the military, you know, when you graduate boot camp, you have no doubt that you're a, you know, an airman or a Marine or a, a soldier, you know, if I, you know, making yourself believe that you're a writer or a filmmaker, or, you know, that's, uh, once you can do that, I think then you've, you've kind of got it licked. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. I think my wife and I were actually talking about this a couple of nights ago over, over a couple of glasses of wine. She's directing um, a, a feature film right now, a documentary about three WNBA players. It's a cool project for her. She played sports growing up, played sports in college. Um, and so kind of an intersection of a lot of really interesting things for her. And so we were just, we talk about, you know, imposter syndrome or, you know, resistance for, for those of you that have read <laughs> Stephen um, and and we talk about it a lot. And this thing we were talking about the other night was something you just touched on, which is um, there actually has to be an opportunity to fail. That's the reason you're experiencing resistance, because there is a chance that you're not good enough at the thing that you're trying to be good at right now. And if you don't have that opportunity for failure, if you're not walking that edge and there is no edge, then what are you doing? You're not doing anything worth anything, whether it's something that, you know, a deliverable that has value in the commercial value in the world or a de- deliverable that has personal, emotional, spiritual value to you as a human being. You're putting pen and paper or you're taking photos, you're doing whatever. There has to be an opportunity to fail because if there isn't an opportunity to fail, then what you're going to create isn't really going to resonate with, with anyone. 
Yeah, exactly. I think uh, that's and in, in his in his uh, weekly email, Stephen Pressfield uh, yeah. writes about that the resistance and that you know the the opportunity for greatness doesn't exist you know it, it behind your your comfort zone, right? Or yeah. you know, the even the opportunity for uh, growth, right? Yeah. I mean, everything is uh, on the you know. It, Success exists on the far side of fear is one of the, the things I talk to guys about. I mean, you've got to get get past the thing that you're afraid of and the the, the imposter syndrome, the, all of those things are, are yeah, good indicators. I've come to, you know, realize that you're you're moving in the right direction. No doubt. I mean, and, and it's a tool as well. Like I can't, I, I mean, there's, I can, I can sit and spend the three minutes with you listing all the things that I have failed at and all of the things that I pushed through resistance and imposter syndrome. And I realized, Hey, I'm not good enough at that thing. So that's a really great indicator for me to move on to another thing and to build another skill to branch out. And I started this whole process coming out of the military, wanting to be, you know, a writer, director, indie filmmaker, you know, who made some big AAA blockbusters and then made indie films like, Chris, you know, Oppenheimer's coming out, right? Like Christopher Nolan, something like that. And I realized I actually fell in love with the business of branded and branded content and advertising. And so I've now settled into this role as an executive producer where I'm, you know, kind of managing campaigns and managing teams of strategists and creatives and production professionals. And I'm not, you know, trying to be this like writer, director, you know, cool, cool guy, right? Like the, the civilian equivalent of, of, of like of the cool guys, you know, it's like, it's so if I wouldn't have experienced that resistance, and I wouldn't have realized that, hey, this isn't the thing that I'm really supposed to do, then I, I wouldn't have gone on that journey and found the thing that I actually do want to do the thing I actually am good at the thing that does actually give me the opportunity to deliverables out into the world. Yeah. And that's, you know, talking about the coaching I do, that's one of the things with guys, the transition, I think, you know, a lot of people get out with an idea of, of hey, here's the thing that I'm going to do that's going to make me a lot of money and make me, you know, famous or, or successful or whatever. And, uh, you know, I tell them, you've got to really pay attention along the route to get there because you'll probably find that there's there's something, you know, it's certainly in that direction, right, on that azimuth. Yeah. But, you know, it may not be, you know, what the, what you thought the ultimate goal was. You know, as long as you're kind of paying attention as you as you walk on that route that, hey, you know, this is really the part that, that I, that I enjoy, that I, I find I'm good at. And you kind of realize that, that, Hey, if you were the Christopher Nolan, that comes with a lot of uh, pain in the butt too, I'm sure. You know? Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the guy, the guy doesn't even have a cell phone. I couldn't imagine not having a cell phone, but yeah, I mean, it's just like, yeah, you bring up a good point, which is, and, and, and worth Parker. And I talked about this as well when he was, he, when he was on last year, the stepping stones along the way, like it's not just, running as fast as you can through all the stepping stones, right? It's get onto a stepping stone of your walking point, right? It's like you're on patrol. Like you, you yeah. want to make sure that you're aware of the things that you need to be aware of because those are going to be indicators to you as you kind of put the pieces of your civilian career together. And I think something that a lot of transitioning vets just don't understand. They think, oh, I'm going to transition and I was soft or because I was this or because I was that I'm going to be successful at this thing. It's like, no, nah, man, like you got to do a lot of work, to figure out if your vision right now matches up with the actuality that you're going to grow into. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's kind of two real points. And, you know, the one is which I always try to throw out talking to the vets is the two big stumbling blocks is one, you know, as veterans, you know, sell themselves short 
quite a bit. You know, I mean, the regardless of what your job was, the just intrinsic things that are, are uh, you know, baked into you during your time in the service of, of you know, the integrity, uh, you know, discipline, timeliness, uh, doing a good job at everything you do. All of those things, obviously, just kind of transcend, you know, career paths, right? Um, but the other is that, you know, you can't expect, you know, kind of, almost the opposite, right? You can't expect that, hey, because I was a, a soft guy, people are going to bend over or because I was a machine gunner or, a, you know, a pilot, that people are going to, can or should bend over and, and kiss my butt for it, right? Um, you, know, you were in the military, that's that's cool, thank you for service, now it's time to join the real world and, uh, you know, where you, where you have to produce uh, in a whole different way. And yeah. uh, I think that's somewhat... Um, prevalent i think maybe it's it was a little bit more during kind of the height of the war you know a lot of people were you know hey i did my time i i served my country i did great things and you know certainly um you know it, a lot of people did you know a lot of people uh did a lot of great things but at the end of the day there were a lot of people who were doing other great things you know for 20 years while we were at war called uh, you know teaching children and policing streets and putting on fires and selling things you know growing our food um and I think, you know, there's a little bit of a title veteran syndrome. And, and if you can get past that and realize that, hey, you know, um, you know, it's time to go back to just being a good citizen. You know, I don't yep. need to be uh, a, uh, uh, you know, a former guy, a, a, you know, a former action guy or a former soft guy or whatever. I can just be, you know, John, the, the good American citizen. And if I can do that well, then that's that's plenty. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something I talk to folks all the time about is that, you know, if, if you want to transition into something uh, different, right, that isn't a one-to-one, right? Like if we're not talking about security or IT or contracting or logistics or supplies, right? you don't want to transition into those things. You want to trans- transition into something more creative, more entrepreneurial. The people that you're going to need to surround yourself with, the people you're going to need to kind of sit at the feet of and learn from are not going to be other veterans who are all <laughs> going to be the people that were doing that for the last 20 years while we were fighting this war um those are the people that you're going to need to do and to your point like what they were doing while we were serving is providing a ton of value to our culture and to our society but if you think about it personally for this transitioning service member that's actually valuable to you because now you get an opportunity somebody who's been doing something for 5 10 20 years while you were doing something else and you can compliment each other yeah, definitely, and it's it's a pretty good bet that, uh, and sometimes a, a that if particularly if you're in in the arts in some way, shape, or form, that that person is going to be very, 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 very different from most of the people yeah. that you've that you've been around. No doubt, and you, you certainly have to be willing to not willing, you have to be eager, you know, to to uh, recognize that and and uh, recognize that you you have a ton to learn, um, and I think yeah. if that's that's one thing that the imposter syndrome kind of leads to is you you know you're at least for me you know I've always felt that I could learn from everybody you know mm-hmm. um, there's something you know even a, a broken clock's right twice a day right so right. Yep. you got something that you can learn from everyone even if it's a good way not to do something right yep. a good example of a bad example um, yep. so that's I think keeping that you know open mind going into any interaction with somebody that uh, you know regardless of how different our, our political views or worldviews uh, the simple fact that you know we have different experiences you know means that you've got something I can learn from you and put to use 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, all right, jumping into walk, walking point, um, <laughs> when did you start the, the, the sub start actually doing the things that you were writing into, into the articles and into, when did you know you had something to say that you wanted to put out there? Uh, probably a little over a year ago. And I, it really started, you're talking about Worth Parker. Um, I was on vacation a little over a year ago and was reading a draft copy of, of his book, the book that he co-wrote. Uh, uh, it's mm. called Always Faithful with, mm. with Tom Schumann and uh, Zach Zaki. Um, and a great, a great book that you should you know, check out for anybody if you haven't. It's about a Marine uh, uh, platoon commander in Afghanistan and his interpreter. Iraq, uh, Afghani, Afghan interpreter. And uh, it kind of goes back and forth. They're two stories and it's it, fascinating. But at the end of the book, uh, Tom Schumann's talking and he's one of the Marines that they lost uh, was a guy named Abate and he created PB Abate, patrol base Abate to, to kind of commemorate him. But Abate was, uh, seems like a great, uh, you know, a wonderful Marine. He, had scribbled. He was always kind of writing poetry or writing things. And he wrote on the wall, you know, somebody has to walk point. And I was sitting on an airplane reading and I read that and it kind of, it just like hit me. You know, I was, I thought about it, thought about it. I wrote it down, you know, and, uh, you know, a couple days later I was, I was thinking about it and I was like, you know, it's, that's close, but it's, it's, a, it's not quite right. Cause everybody's got to walk point right in your own life. And, uh, I've just, I talk with tons of Marines that are, are you know transitioning, getting ready to get out, and a lot of them are are um, you know looking to follow somebody else's path, you know. And then I realized talking to civilians that that's you know it's it's kind of become a epidemic, right? You know, the people are there's just tons of influencers and and people that uh, other people you know are, are trying to follow. And if you you know if you follow somebody else's path, you're going to get where they you know to their destination, and that's probably not where you want to be. <laughs> Right. So the more I, I sat down and started kind of, you know, writing some of this stuff out, I was like, you know what, there's, there's, uh, the opportunity to really take a lot of the stuff that I've learned over now, 35 years, either active duty or, or working with Marines and, and use the, the, the big analogy really of a, a patrol, you know, there's, there's so much there, um, so much room for, to kind of make points. Um, and so I started, you know, writing some of that stuff down and then, three things. Well, there are three really reasons for starting the Substack. Uh, the first was my, I was writing the book and my agent told me that, uh, having a email list is like the best thing, you know, they don't care. Publishers don't care how many you know, followers you have on Twitter or anything. They care that you have an email list of 10,000 people. Um, so the best way to do that was to, you know, start a Substack. So I did, um, I started that in September of, of last year. So we're just a little over a month away from um, uh, being a year. And the second reason was I wanted to kind of, you know, coalesce some of these ideas and you know, put them on paper and then see, you know, if they were, you know, other people found value in them. And then the, the third, and really the kind of the driving thing was just force myself to write, you know, and produce writing and publish it every, uh, every Thursday at 6am. All right. So for now 50, 40, uh, 45, 46 weeks in a row, you know, it's, it's never been late. All right. So, um, and that's been useful, really useful. It's been re rewarding. You know, there's been a lot of, uh, positive feedback. It's grown, um, you know, pretty significantly from, from what it was like with three friends to, uh, 
uh, approaching 700 and some now there's I mean, like 4,000 people read it a month. So it's, uh, it's growing. Um, it's enjoyable. You know, I enjoy the, the kind of you know, give and take, uh, you know, readers writing and, uh, you know, providing thoughts on, on things. So. You're you're starting to break up. I'm breaking up a little bit. Yeah, uh, now there you. Am I good here? There, that's good. Okay. Um. So you'd said that you were fortunate to to get into the MFA program, um, which I certainly appreciate the humility. But uh, you you know, fortunate people aren't the ones who make it into MFA programs. People who can write are the ones who make it into MFA programs. So. I'm curious when, when you developed kind of the craft, right? The, the page craft and, and, and you mentioned reading short stories and things as a kid, like, did you write as a kid? Did you journal in the military? Did you write as like, I mean, I'm sure you wrote a lot of doctrine. So. Yeah, I, I wrote a ton as a kid. I wrote a lot of short mm -hmm. stories. Um, I, I loved that, like satire things, you know, if I could make fun of things, you know, um, and you know, you join in the Marine Corps, I, I was still doing that and that was kind of frowned upon. You know, when, when I'm writing like just, you know, funny short stories, uh, sure. at the time it, it wasn't a, a big hit. So I, I kind of stopped. Um, I did continue to write, you know, some, a couple of magazine articles and things like that for military publications, but the more, like I said, more kind of doctrine focused. Um, and it was, it was really the, when I got into the, the liberal arts, the literature, uh, program that I, you know, started really digging into reading a lot more, you know, other, you know, more broadly. And then, uh, you know, a lot of things we would have to, we'd have to write. Um, and so, you know, that's the recognition, you know, kind of rekindled, I guess, the, mm -hmm. the love of writing. And so one of the papers, uh, essays that I had written in the, the liberal arts program, my professor, you know, was like, Hey, this is, this is really good. You know, have you ever thought of, uh, applying to the MFA program. And that, that wound up, that was really the only you know, piece of writing that I had. So that was my, my submission. And it, uh, was a nonfiction. It was a, an essay about, uh, my time in Iraq as a sniper. And, um, it was uh, called death letters. It, it was published in consequences magazine, but a, a kind of a letter to, a uh, young Iraqi guy that I killed. Um, and that is a chapter kind of in the book, you know, morphed a little bit, but, hmm. but that was, uh, yeah. And then I kind of branched out, you know, started writing fiction, um, and other things while I was in the program. So you said that the writing, your short story writing, your, your comedic writing wasn't well received in the Marine Corps. Was that, how were you sharing it at the time? How did you know people, uh, and, and what do you mean? Received? <laughs> um, I was, uh, I mean, when I joined, you know, I, I got to my first platoon. I was like, Hey guys, you know, I wrote this thing, you know, <laughs> who wants to sit around and listen to me, read my story. And, uh, yeah, that it became pretty evident that that was just, that was not something that we did in, in the, uh, sniper platoon. Right. We, uh, we drank a lot of beer. We, uh, you know, studied, uh, we went running or whatever, but we didn't really sit around and read short stories to each other. So <laughs> that uh, kind of got, got put on the back burner for, for a number of years. Interesting. 
Um, so, so what have you, what have you learned in the last year? And this will, by the way, this episode will, will be live around September. It should be about a year of, of, of the Substack. So what have you learned over the course of the last year as you've had the, um, the cadence of, of delivery, right? And then you've had that back and forth with your readers. What have you learned about yourself, about your writing? What have you adjusted? Oh man, a ton. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing is that, you know, I mean, everybody has a level of expertise, right? And uh, it's it's very, particularly if you live in a world where that expertise is prevalent, you know, I, I'm around military people all the time. So, you know, me telling them, uh, you know, using an analogy of, of uh, going on patrol or how to pack their pack or whatever doesn't re- necessarily resonate. But there are a lot of people that that will, you know, resonate with. So the, uh, you know, not doubting your, your expertise or not doubting that there's a, uh, uh, audience for, for what it is that you, you want to produce. Um, and then, but then kind of on the other side of that is, is recognizing, you know, when I first started this, my kind of goal was to produce, uh, content that people find meaningful, right? That was, that was what I wanted to do. And it took uh, maybe three or four months before I realized that that was a an impossible goal, right? One, I can't, uh, I can't. Uh... I'm sorry. Did you hear that? What? You're good. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. My Siri popped up and started trying to oh, gotcha. answer a question. Siri, um, she's always buttoning. She's always buttoning. But uh, oh, the second what was the second? Oh, that the uh, trying to write things that people find meaningful. You know, I, I can't control. You know, re- recognizing that I can't control what people find meaningful. Hmm. All right, so what I can control is you know produce things that I find meaningful. Um, or produce things that I'm proud of. Uh, that's that's the best I can do, and in hope that there are people that that will find it meaningful. Or um, so that was that was a big one. Um, you know, I realized, and and I didn't realize it, I knew it, but I'm a procrastinator, mm. right? And uh, so I've tried a million techniques for you know preventing my procrastination, but I finally come to just accept the fact that I'm a, I'm a procrastinator. I will get it done, but it, it may well be at the kind of at the 11th hour. So coming to terms with that has been useful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, your second point is an interesting one because I think, you know, a lot of content creators, right. Whether it's writing, whether it's filmmaking, whether it's TikTok, whether it's whatever, right. There's, there's, there's all kinds of ways to get meaningful content out into the world these days. And I don't necessarily judge the, 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 the various medium mediums media for it right um but i i do think it's really important for people to think about are you trying to write for what you think an audience might hypothetically enjoy or consume or want or are you writing those things that you think are valuable that you maybe want them to want and then finding the audience and building it that way right i think it's a better way to do it yeah, exactly. I think uh, that um, is it. It took me a, a little bit, you know. You kind of find that you're pandering a little bit, perhaps. You know, you're you're, and that's. I think it's probably natural, and it's it's possibly unavoidable, right? When you're when you're beginning something, because you're 
the tendency is to to try to imitate or emulate people that you admire, you know, and you kind of have to find your own voice or your own technique or whatever the case is. But uh, I think we also enter into any creative endeavor with an idea of who our ideal audience is and should be. And then we may find that, you know, that's that's not them, but they're they're off here on the left. So that's why it's important to, you know, stay open minded to, uh, you know, I think just continue to produce stuff. I right? produce content that you find valuable and there, yep. you know, there doubtlessly will be other people that will that will uh, enjoy it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd love to switch gears to the book here and talk a little bit about what that process has been like for you. And I'd love to, to talk a little bit about kind of where you're at. And it's, it, it's something a lot of people don't know, right? It's like, you, okay, cool. You got a publishing deal. You got to publish a book, but there's all these other things that have to happen or it gets delayed and all these different things. So whatever you're willing to talk about, I'd love to kind of just dive into the into the weeds on that and get, get a little dirty and talk about what that process has been like for you, where you're at in that process now. and and um and we'll we'll have you back on when when the book is published mm-hmm. and we can talk properly right. about it for a whole episode but for now where are you in that process what's it been like for you yeah so quickly i'd entered the mfa program as a nonfiction writer that's what they accepted me as mm-hmm. um and then i realized that anything that i wrote would have to be reviewed by the department of defense and and socom and everybody so i i asked them i'm like hey can i can i switch can i become a fiction writer and they were like, well, you have to reapply. So I went through my first year. I had to reapply and, you know, it was reaccepted. Um, so my, you know, my thesis at the end of this uh, MFA program was to com- produce a completed novel. And so I was, you know, super excited. I've got a novel that's going to be published and it'll be a bestseller. And, uh, you know, I went, I don't know through how many, you know, attempts to find an agent and it just, it just wasn't happening. Um, I wound up through so great fortune to meet a lady who, uh, I was helping with a a book that she was writing with some historical research. And she was like, Hey, well, send me some of your writing. Let me send it to my agent. And it really quickly, um, you know, he was like, you know, had me a book deal, right. For a a memoir. So of course, you know, and I settled on a a year when I signed the contract, you know, give give me one year to write this book, which uh, if I had not been a procrastinator, I probably could have wrote in six months, but uh, it, it took me the, you know, it took me like 11 and a half. I, I, I turned it in at 11 and a half months. But as a, um, if you've been in the military at all and you write about that experience, it's it's mandatory that you submit your manuscript for review by the Department of Defense. That's a little more onerous if you've been in, you know, in special operations. So it's been, uh, the process can take, I've been told six months. It's been, mine's been at about four right now. Um, so it's done. It's it's setting with with whomever is is reviewing it, um, but that's a you know working a you know a full time job you know, and then trying to churn out uh, to pages. It it demands certainly a level of of discipline. Um, you know I think everybody probably wishes that their their process were were better or different. And and if you're a writer, you've been told you know uh, you know a million times that you have to write every day. And I um, don't do that. You know, I go for weeks without a month without writing a, a word. Um, so I don't believe that, you know, that, that you have to follow any, any particular process or any particular uh, model. Um, I mean, I do, if you want to be a writer, you got to write, you know, uh, I think uh, you've, you've, but there, you know, I've, run into, I don't know how many people that go, oh, yeah, I want to write a book or I'm 
going to do this or whatever if I had the time. And, and, you know, I was getting up at four in the morning to write for an hour, hour and a half before work, you know, coming home and, and working on it till I'd fall asleep, you know, spending weekends blocked off. So it's, it could definitely be done. Um, you know, if I, I'm not a, uh, out of the ordinary, you know, guy. So, you know, if I could do it, you know, anybody can do it. Yeah, I, I, I don't um, I don't ascribe to any one particular way of working on that front either. I know that there are a thousand ways to skin this cat. And so one of the things that I'm in a fortunate enough position to do is talk to folks like you who kind of have their their process and we're able to kind of put it out there. And I don't necessarily have to in any one process. Right. There's a there's a bunch of different ways to do it. And and certainly for those out there that are listening uh, and, and trying to figure out what their process is, you know, it's just like with dieting or just like with workout. Um, working out, the the one that works is the one you're going to do, right? Like So whatever your process needs to be to get pen to paper and, and get a deliverable out or get film, you know, in the camera, whatever it is, that's the one that you need to do. Um, if you don't mind me asking, the woman that you helped uh, with the research, was that a, a, a paid gig or were you just helping her as a favor? I was helping her as a favor. So she was writing a book about the World War II Raiders, the Marine Raiders in, in mm-hmm. World War II, and I'm the editor of the, the Marine Raider Association magazine. Mm-hmm. So I had met her. Um, she was a, a this wonderful lady who had been, you know, Southern Living editor for many years and has since written a lot of uh, historical books. And uh, she, um, her book's called Marine Raiders, but she hit me up for some, some assistance on that. And, uh, you know, I was happy to do it. And then, you know, we kind of formed a, you know, a little bit of a friendship and uh yeah i mean it was a huge huge day in my life when, when she was like hey send me something you're writing you know well, it's, uh, yeah i mean that's what i'm driving at right and this is something that has come up quite a bit on the podcast uh here for for folks that whatever the medium might be whether it's writing filmmaking photography whatever it is there's everybody's got an opinion about free work everybody's opinion about free work is a strong opinion um i have strong opinions but they're loosely held right like i kind of try to try to like navigate this space the best I can. Cause I do know that, that people are, are kind of, you know, looking for, for guidance here. I'm a huge believer in doing what you did, which is I'm in a position to help. Let me help. And not in order to see what happens, but let me just help and be the person that I am, be the professional that I am, be the you know researcher or writer or filmmaker or consultant, whatever it is, offer those things up, meet those people, have those conversations, do that work, form those bonds, form those friendships and maybe something happens, maybe something doesn't, but you're, you're meeting people, you know, heart to heart, mind to mind as, as fellow humans. I think it's just such an important thing. And obviously you've got this opportunity coming out of it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I almost wish I, you know, there's times where I wish I didn't agree with that so much, but you know, because, uh, you know, when you have that, that mentality, you wind up doing a lot of stuff for free. Um, yeah. and you know, I'm very fortunate now that, you know, I, like I said, I have a, a, job that I really enjoy and, and it pays pretty well. I'm retired, you know, from the military. So, you know, I'm not, uh, it's not necessary that, you know, everything that I do, you know, pays dividend, you know, pays you know, cash money. Right. Yep. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm a huge believer in, you know, if you have the opportunity to expand your circle, all right. I mean, it almost always comes back to, to pay rewards, you know, yep. through, uh, you know, opportunities to be on, you know, a podcast that may lead to something or an opportunity to, uh, you know, do a reading somewhere that you may 
maybe you just make a friend, right? Or maybe, you mm -hmm. know, it's the person in the audience that's going to change your life. You know, you never, you never really know. Yeah. You also bring up a really important point, which is that as, as, a, as a person, you should evaluate for yourself where mm -hmm. you are at personally and where you are professionally, where you are financially, mm -hmm. uh, to, to ensure that the decisions you're making are ones that you should be making. And sometimes you got to adjust that, right? Like I, there's seasons where I'm happy to consult a little bit for free to help somebody out because they need it because, you know, I'm doing well. And then there's other times where I, I don't have bandwidth to do that because, you know, I really need to focus on, on the paying gigs to, to pay the bills. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, uh, I mean, it's, a, it's probably a good note to throw out to people that are, or, you know, writers or, or artists in, in any fashion, you know, that it's, you know, when you meet someone that's a, that's a writer, um, just saying, Hey, can I send you my manuscript and, and read it is, or, Hey, I'll, I'll shoot it to you and you know, read it, give me some notes or whatever is, is probably not the best way to, to, you know, to go about making a friend. Yeah. Right. Uh, Worth and I talk about this all the time. The, you know, the more you, the more you uh, read people's stuff, the more people want you to read it. And that's sometimes, uh, you know, some of it, you know, we love um, both of us work um, at the Lethal Minds Journal. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's great to sit down and read, you know, people who are, are relatively new to the craft of writing, you know, and being able to give them good feedback. But uh Sometimes that turns into, hey, here's a, here's just a, a rough draft, or here's some notes that I threw down on the page. Um, like, nah, man, I'm I'm, you know, if if you want me to take the time to read this, then it needs to be your best work, yeah. right? It doesn't yeah. have to be great, but it has to be. Um, at least you have to have gone over it, you know. Let spell check do their thing, you know. Check try Grammarly, you know, and then yeah. and then uh, and then get it to me. And it, uh, you know, saying no is hard. Um, you know, because yeah, you feel like every opportunity might be a missed, you know, opportunity. But uh, like you said, you really got to decide for yourself, you know, how much can you afford to give back? You know, obviously, what's the relationship with the person who's asking? I just a really good friend of mine out of the blue sent me their screenplay, first screenplay mm -hmm. that they'd written. And it was uh, and I don't know very little about screenplays, but it was it was great. Um, you know, super excited to, to get the opportunity to read it and and, and have some you know, ability to comment. I love it. That's my world. I love, I got, I get a, a, a listener of the podcast who I'm um, mentoring through a screenwriting process right now. He's working on, on his and um, it's uh, it's, it's super fun. I love it. Um, okay. So I do, I do obviously want to have you back on when, when the memoir is, is, is live and, and published and all of that, but could you give us a, a bit of a, a, a bit of a teaser now? What, what, what was it like for you to go through that writing process to write those things that, that are, are obviously very personal to you um, and, and in some cases lethal, right? And so there's like, you're kind of going through a, kind of a range of experiences and, and emotions. What was it like for you to reflect on, on your career and, and, and to put pen to paper and write about those things? Yeah, it was, uh, I think the, the scope of, of what I was going to write changed a bunch of times, you know, um, I don't think I could have written it, you know, five years earlier, you know, I think there was, there's part of, of me, you know, coming full circle, um, being, you know, at least making, you know, becoming comfortable with my, uh, imposter syndrome and, and becoming, uh, you know, maybe starting to gain wisdom, right. You know, the, the, you know, eventually your experience turns into wisdom if you, if you live long enough. And I, now I'm at the point where, 
I think I'm, you know, one of the, I think warning signs that you're starting to, is you realize that, you know, nothing, you know, I've gone from thinking that I I knew everything for, for many, many years to realizing that I know very little, but, uh, it was it was interesting. I really started. I, I signed the, the contract and got started writing. Or actually, I started writing before I got the contract. But it was uh, twenty uh, twenty twenty one, right? So September twenty twenty one. I'm you know twenty years after the fact. I'm writing about the events that you know of September eleventh. So, uh, and going through it, it was you know one of the things I told myself is I've got to be honest. You know, it's very easy to write history, right? But if you're really going to write a memoir, I've got to try to think back. What you know, what was I thinking about? I've got to really battle the urge to to be the cool guy right? in every situation, and you know, come to to terms with, hey, you know, I be and be okay with, you know, hey, I, I did this, I could have done better, I, I, you know, you know, this happened that wasn't the most appealing, or or whatever the case may be. Um, so it was a, a huge growing up process, you know, from, from a guy who's, you know, over 50 years old, right. And, you know, I felt like, I felt like I grew a lot, um, during the, the process of it. And yeah, I learned a ton, um, and, and, and worth, you know, was one of the unpaid readers that I was able to, you know, send it to and, and get, you know, get tons of feedback along with the, the lady, um, mm. and my wife kind of, you know, plenty of people were reading it, providing, um, feedback during the process. Um, it's, uh, I mean, anytime you take a, a kind of a lens and, and you put your life under a microscope or any portion of it, you know, you start to recognize uh, things you wish you could have done differently. I mean, most of mine are, you know, I have the good fortune. I just hit 31 years of, of marriage, but there were plenty of times recognizing that, hey, I was for a long, you know, big chunks of, of my marriage. I was gone, you know, big chunks of my fatherhood. I wasn't around as much as I I probably should have been, uh, you know, and when I was home, I was, you know, thinking of work or, or thinking about getting back to, to combat or whatever the, the case is. So there was, there was definitely portions where I was, uh, you know, somewhat ashamed of my <laughs> younger self. Um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, uh, I think valuable, you know, even if it's not a book, if you never get it published, but it's just sitting back and, and really reflecting on your life and kind of having a, a conversation with your younger self, um, is, uh, probably something everybody should, should do at some point. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing that right now. I, I don't have a book deal, but I'm, I'm doing what you just said, which is putting pen to paper and, and writing about those things. And, and yeah, it's hard if you're, but it's so important to, it's, it's obviously so important to just to tell the truth, period. Right. And something that, you know, especially, especially these days, I've been thinking quite a bit about, you know, it's like truth, truth, courage and truth are the two most important things to, to me. Right? Like that's the currency. Like if you're, if you have the courage to tell the truth, and if, especially if you have the courage to tell the truth about yourself, um, then, you know, that, that is going to, it's going to pay emotional and relational dividends in your life. Um, not the kind of dividends that like you were talking about, right? Whether it's a book deal and getting published and making money that that would be amazing. But if, if, even if it's just for yourself and for your your partner, your spouse, your your wife, your husband, whatever, then the emotional and relational capital that you're going to collect by by telling the truth about yourself as best you can mm-hmm. is is it, that's uh, it's unparalleled. 
Yeah, because you really become forced to tell the truth about yourself to yourself. Yeah, <laughs> you know? and uh, it's very easy to to kind of look at yourself in the in the the mirror with a, uh, you know, you know, when you look at yourself in the mirror, you it's it's easy to not see the the you that's standing there. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Uh, you yep. kind of like you know make your make your uh, cool guy face and and uh, or you see this yourself that's. 20 pounds lighter or whatever, you know, 10 to 10 years younger. But yeah, uh, yeah you kind of, if you can throw open the, you know, the shades and let the, let the light in, you know, that's the way that uh, dirty laundry gets clean. Right. Yep. That's, that's, that's no doubt. That's no doubt. Um, all right. So to, to wrap things up here, I've been, I've been asking an open-ended question uh, to, to end each episode here. Um, and so we'd love to get, get your thoughts and feelings here. What the question is, what's on your heart, what's on your mind for, for our community right now. And that could be a piece of advice. It could be something you want to get off your chest, something you want to reiterate that we've already talked about here. Uh, but what's on your heart and what's on your mind? Yeah, I too, I, I mentioned it, but I think the, the two like almost contradictory things. One is, is, you know, recognize that if you're transitioning, you've got a ton to offer. Um, you know, it's, it's very easy, I think, to, to get out and then, you know, you, you can't really be prepared for the fact that you are stepping out of a tribe, you know, like Sebastian Younger taught you when you step out of the military and then mm -hmm. suddenly you're alone. Um, you know, you may have a family and things like that, but you, you're missing this huge chunk of what was you. Um, it's, it's easy to look for that in places, you know, where, you know, either that are going to be benefit you or that are, are not going to benefit you. And I think there's, you know, we've probably seen a lot lately of people, you know, trying to get in and falling in with other tribes that may or may not be the best thing for them. Um, but I think recognizing how much you have to offer as a, as a veteran is, is the first thing. And then the, the, like I said, the corollary of that is recognizing that, you know, nobody owes you anything. Because you, you know, just because you spent some time in the military, you served your country, you know, now it's time to um, just be a good citizen, right? And, and and not try to rest on the, you know, what you've done in the past. One of the things that it used to frustrate the hell out of me when I was in, in high school, and you probably had the same experience. Adults used to always say, you know, your high school years are the best time of your life. Anytime you would complain. Um, and that always like really, man. If if that's kind of sad, right? If my uh, if my high school years are the best time of my life, I've got you know this this long length of, of sucky life to go. Um, the same thing kind of applies to the military, you know. I mean, I loved almost every day, you know, the twenty plus years that I spent in the military. But I'll be damned, right? If uh, I will ever say that, hey, that was the best time, you know. If if the best time is not in front of you, then then you've got to you know figure a way to make it that way. Right. There's uh, because, you know, we we as, as veterans have so much to offer and the world has so much to to offer to us. Um, so I would you know, those would be my two pieces of advice. Super well, I think. And, and it's great. They, you're right. The second one acts as a corollary because you are capable of more than you think on the outside. And because you're not owed anything, that is why and how you're going to figure out what you're capable of. We all the time. You're you're breaking up again. I'm sorry.
No. Can you hear me? No. I mean, you're really broken. I don't. Can you hear me now? Yes. All right. That's very strange. Anyway, I was just co-signing on what you were saying. Uh, be, a, be a fun ending to the podcast. I was just saying that, um, that, uh, you know, it's, it's because, because you, because you, you aren't owed anything. That's how you're going to find out, right. W what you're capable of here on the other side of this, uh, as, as a civilian, because those frameworks and those entitlements and everything that we had in place in the military, they don't exist anymore. But what they did was they provided a springboard, springboard and a foundation for you to build those skills. Now it's up to you to translate them over here. And, and, um, and we have, we have uh, the community of, of folks that we can rely on for, for the transition things. And then we have the, the folks that, that we can rely on, um, you know, our, our new relationships with folks that are pursuing what we want to pursue. So, uh, yeah, I think that's huge. Recognizing the, uh, that there is a huge community that's willing and, and able to help. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, John, where can folks find you on um, social or, or on the, the website? Where can folks go, go to find your work? So the Substack is jdaily.substack.com. That's the best place right there. I do have a, website walkingpoint.org they can check out as well great yeah we'll put those links in the in the show notes and i'll, I'll tag you on instagram and uh, and linkedin on the uh, little video snippets that we put out here and uh john sincerely appreciate your time i'm, I'm glad we're getting to know each other better i'm excited for uh, for more conversations like this definitely, definitely. all right brother. Thanks, thanks very much, much. thanks